Okay, let's roll. Uh, uh, good to see you guys, Matt and Kelly. This is sort of a, um, an emergency gathering of, of Kibbe on Liberty, and, and we changed our publication date by a day just because I wanted people to get a fresh and rational take on what's going on in Afghanistan. Um, which of course is hard to do on social media, so <laughs> so I thought we'd do that. But but remind us, uh, Matt, you've never been on the show before, no. but, but uh, you're an American conservative, and you're going over to Spectator. Tell us a little bit about American conservative, even even some of the history because it's relevant to to what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, it, it feels more relevant than ever, and it's a weird time to leave right now because um, the American conservative was established in 2002 uh, by Pat Buchanan, Scott McConnell. And uh, Taki, I'm never going to be able to pronounce his last name, but the, yeah. the Greek, the Greek uh, uh, billionaire, I think he is. And it was established in order to oppose the Iraq War. And at the time, to be a conservative magazine, especially to put American conservative in your name when you were anti-Iraq, was a very, very audacious move because yeah. the entire right was coalescing around this Bush administration war plan. And and what TAC did was to come along and say, no, actually, the true conservative position is to understand that you can't just build a fresh nation out of the soil, that you can't just grow up a democracy in a part of the world where it's never really been known before, uh, that this is, in fact, something that's beyond government's competency. This is something that government and our military simply can't do, and that this is going to end uh, disastrously. And, and Buchanan also thought that the Afghanistan uh, occupation would end disastrously, too, because we were attempting to nation-build there as well. And it's it's jarring now to see how right he's ultimately become you know we've all seen the images over the past few days of the the helicopters taking off and the the afghanis who are you know attempting to cling to them and and who are crying out in desperation and it is it is very sad that this is how this ends but it's difficult not to think that this is in some ways a fitting ending because this has been such a disastrous defective occupation all along yeah it was it was a flawed concept from day one and you you remind me that uh before um george w bush flipped because as i recall he ran against nation building he did yep. in his successful election campaign but the the conservative tradition um had been far more skeptical of of foreign intervention and certainly the nation building part of it um as as sort of a fiscal responsibility issue and also um understanding that that government fails even when you desperately don't want it to fail Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a there was a seismic shift after 9/11 within the GOP that that we're we're still dealing with today. Yeah, uh, and Bush ran against Clinton all but calling him an imperialist, which is weird to think about. But yeah. you know, Clinton had uh, intervened in well, most notably in, in Serbia, you know, in the Kosovo conflict, and uh, there was a sense of I think even though he wasn't that militaristic, there was a sense of liberal humanitarianism, international liberal humanitarianism within his administration. And conservatives were much more careful with the government's purse strings. They were much more generally back then in some ways modest in their thinking. And I think two things happened. The first one was that 9-11 was a shock to all of us. And there was a sense afterwards that we had ignored a problem for far too long. And it came coupled with this sense of idealism, this sense that we were being unshackled to finally solve a problem that we had ignored. And, you know, so we started talking about not just invading Afghanistan, but remaking the entire region. I mean, it was an incredibly idealistic period. And idealism is not necessarily compatible with conservatism, which takes a much more level view of the world. So there was that. 
And then there was also just the fact that you had this very small group of people who we would now refer to as neoconservatives who had been uh, complaining about Saddam Hussein for a very long time, who thought that George H.W. Bush should have kicked him out back in 1991 during the Gulf War, and who had you know signed on with the Project for a New American Century, for example, who had drafted a letter back in, I think it was 1997, saying that we ought to get rid of Saddam. And as soon as the planes hit the Twin Towers, their thoughts turned to Iraq. And it was those voices that ultimately won out in the Bush administration. And that's why we are where we are today. So we all met, um, I think, about five years ago in the offices of American Conservative. And our good friend John Utley, who recently passed away, um, was, I think, one of the, the agitators that helped American Conservative get going. And he, he spent most of his professional career agitating against neoconservatism. Mm-hmm. When, when did you meet John? Wow. Um, I cannot remember the exact moment that I met John Utley. Uh, it was obviously... Was he like the chairman of American Conservative or something? He was, at, for a point, when the, when the magazine was going through financial straits, he came in and he put in a lot of money and they made him a pub- the publisher. Um, but in, you know, he was more a board member. He was an active board member. Uh, he was probably the face of the American conservative in Washington, D.C. So yeah. he would go to all these meetings and, and, and events and sometimes in hostile territory. I remember him going to uh, Grover Norquist has this famous Wednesday meeting, which is all, you know, basically normie Republicans. And he'd go in and he'd start talking about the wars and getting out of the wars and neoconservatives. And, you know, people were very polite and he made a lot of good friends and he had a lot of awesome connections. But his you know he 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 had the mantle and he and he was flying the flag for for years before his passing unfortunately i don't he found like i wrote something opposing the invasion of kuwait which i'm now aging myself here <laughs> and that that's how he found me like he yes. just he just and he found everybody um but but you left american conservative a couple years ago um, and went to the Quincy Institute, right. and you've been on the show before, but remind us about the Quincy Institute, because I think it's a tremendous resource for this stuff. Yeah, I mean, the Quincy Institute started uh, basically in the void of there, not, there being a bipartisan, transpartisan organization that wanted to challenge the foreign policy status quo. And so what's unique about Quincy is that it draws money, funding, support, audience from both the left and the right. Um, as you know, there has been a very active anti-war uh, element on both sides uh, since 9-11, but nobody has really harnessed both sides, uh, the, the common interests of those, both, those two groups. And it's very challenging, I have to say, in today's political environment. Uh, people are so polarized and, and distrustful of each other. But I think uh, we've been very successful at tapping into... Um, public sentiment against the wars and this idea that we are tired of endless forever wars that Washington can no longer explain. And uh, so I see, you know, I, 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 I share my sentiments with, 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 uh, with Matt here uh, that what we're seeing on television today is a direct culmination of the failed war policy that we have been talking about as an institution but we're bringing in experts and people who have been talking about this for years on both the left and the right. Realists, uh, restrainers, anti-war, um, 
groups, advocates. And so it's, a, it's kind of an amalgamation of both scholarly work to undergird our arguments of restraint, but also an active um, advocacy element that wants to go up head to head with the neoconservatives, the blob, you know, the the establishment warmongers. And yeah. um, because, you know, uh, I was at American Conservative for many years and, and with Matt, we edited every day together. And um, it, it is hard because the establishment has um, bigger house organs. They have more people on mainstream media advocating for more war, more intervention. And so this this institution was started to sort of, you know, challenge that like in the media within the blob. And yeah. I think we're doing a good job. You know, one of the things that that um, frustrates me, like the, the narrative in the last 72 hours, um, one of the talking points um, coming even from some libertarians is that the American people voted for this so they deserve everything they got. And I don't buy that at all. And and there is this contradiction between the DC machine that you, you've talked about and you've written about extensively versus what the American people actually want. And, and I'm thinking back to George W. Bush um, running against nation building, running against empire, Barack Obama promising to get us out of these wars, mm -hmm. uh, Donald Trump promising to get us out of these wars. And it strikes me that the American people always vote for less of this stuff. Do you think that's true? I, I think that's true, and I, and I agree with you. You see the blob uh, in the mainstream media rising up, gnashing teeth, rending clothing over this withdrawal of 2,500 troops. And they're using this sloppy evacuation as a justification for their interest in staying in that war forever. And I think the American people are smarter than that. I mean, they've been polling year after year after year that Afghanistan staying there is not worth it and that we need to get out and Iraq uh, as well. And even more importantly, veterans have been polling in this way year after year. In the most recent poll that I saw this summer, uh, veterans, I think, were polling at 70%-ish. I may be wrong on that, but it's an, a, a very strong majority saying that the war was not worth it and it's time to get out. So um, I, think, I think the public is on our side. I, f I feel veterans are on our side. I'm sorry that the evacuation has been so sloppy and I'm not gonna defend uh, the Biden administration for that, but I will defend them for, for actually having the courage to get the remaining troops out of there. Yeah, and I, I wanna get into that, but I'm, I have this perhaps contradictory view that we had to get out, we should have never gone in, but um, any exit strategy is better than no exit strategy. And being shocked and appalled at how um, not, not even poorly planned, unplanned that was. And I feel like they've had at least since 2014 to plan a rational process for getting our people and our friends out of there. Can I have both of these positions or is it irrational to expect the government to even be that competent? And it's difficult to say because right now there's a lot of people expressing a lot of certainty on Twitter over exactly what we should have done and the Pentagon should have done and the Afghani should have done. And we just don't know. Um, I will say that, well, first of all, on one hand, there have been accounts that have been coming out about U.S. military bases in Afghanistan getting packed up and generally downscaled. You know, that, that preparations were happen happening, that this was going on. On the other hand, 
the Pentagon does have a tendency, if it's been asked to do something that it doesn't want to do, of dragging its feet and at the last minute going, oh, God, we can't possibly do this. Better call off the whole thing altogether. It does seem to me inexplicable that they weren't better prepared than this. It does. Now, this is probably going to take years and IG reports and, and postmortems and the whole thing to figure out what actually happened, why we were this woefully unprepared. But I, I do think that whatever a withdrawal ended up looking like, it wasn't going to be pretty. There, there was going to be some, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, bad things that happened. Just because, remember, all the way back in, in 2017... The Taliban controlled about 40% of Afghanistan, 40% of the, the districts that were there, or they, they contested them, meaning they were battling there. Um, we had 2,500 troops still in the country, which is what the hawks are now saying. If we just sent them back in or kept them there, we could hold off the Taliban. Taliban was still moving into Kandahar, which is the second biggest uh, city in the country. They had consolidated real enormous control over the rural districts in Afghanistan, uh, because those farmers who were there, the, the real working poor, felt alienated and disenfranchised by the government that we put in place because it was so corrupt and because it was skimming off the top and, and because it was, generally speaking, very weak. So, uh, again, the it's all very complex. And the idea that it was just 2,500 troops or the Pentagon should have come up with a blueprint or this or that, uh, it, it's probably more complicated than that. and We probably won't know for a while. What's, what's your take? I agree with, with Matt entirely. I couldn't have said it this better. This is our podcast back in the day, just us vociferously agreeing I with agree each with other. I agree with you. But yeah. No, I mean, I, 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 I definitely want to emphasize the point that the military has slow walked this from the beginning. And as you recall, that, you know, President Trump ostensibly wanted to get out, too, and actually went so far as to sign an agreement with the Taliban to get out and the, and the military... Um, you know, bit their teeth and, and leaked their uh, dismay to the press um, and nothing was done. He wanted to get everybody out, the troops out by the end of December of last year. Uh, that didn't happen. And so finally we had this 2,500 by May 1, which was the part of the agreement. And uh, that's, you know, so the fact that they didn't prepare, not so much, you know, you're right, they had everything packed up but they didn't prepare for this exit strategy to get all of these uh, special immigrant visas uh, personnel out, the mm -hmm. interpreters and the uh, translators and other assistants. And I think that's really a sticking point for Americans right now, because, and particularly the veterans. Uh, they know that the military had time to do this. Why didn't they have those SIVs out of there uh, much, months ago, much less a week ago or two weeks ago? And I agree with Matt. We don't. We won't know right now. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised if it was the slow walking by the by the military. And yeah. And I'm sure we can find some blame in the White House as well. Um, they didn't want to look like they were panicking by pulling out all these people um, and, and having these C-17s leave packed with with translators and whatnot. But I'm sorry. That's. I mean, if that's what it takes, I would rather have that than have these images of people clinging to the planes and and falling off wings, which we have today. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it, it's disgusting to watch. And, and I, you know, I'll put on my tinfoil hat here for just a minute and take it a step further because um, I always debate when I look at a, at a government failure, particularly when it comes to foreign policy, um, is there an incentive problem, which, which would be my public choice hat, or is there a knowledge problem, which is my Hayek hat? And, and I, I debate um, 
is this sloppy exit and those horrific images of people falling off of planes, is this a purposeful narrative to tell us never ever to leave any place again? Yeah. Or is it just horrific government failure? I don't know. I don't I don't know either, but this is this is not helping the Biden administration whatsoever. I think in the end, history will prove him right, that there, this was an unwinnable war uh, militarily, and that we, we put 20 years, and it's going to be two, three trillion dollars when all said and done. I think history will prove that right now, politically, he's hurt. So I don't know how they could have <laughs> they could have orchestrated this uh, better for the Republicans uh, teeing up for the midterms. But the midterms are some of course, kind of, uh, of course, the blob is not the same as the Biden administration. That is true. That is true. Um, what, what, what's your take? I think, uh, well, to answer your question, I, it could very well be a public choice problem. And then you get into questions about how autonomous can a gigantic military be? And you hear about, you, you talk to guys who serve and, and the game of telephone that gets played from the commanders on down, uh, just how much orders can change along the way or things can get misinterpreted. Uh, to say nothing of the fact that, of course, the generals have an agenda of their own. That's certainly a very valid question. I like the knowledge problem better because, to me, Afghanistan is one gigantic knowledge problem from the perspective of the United States. We went in. We didn't understand the lack of tradition of liberal democracy. Uh, we didn't understand the influence that Pakistan would ultimately play, whereby the Taliban can just scurry back over the border and be uh, sheltered by the government for a good, I mean, 20 years and counting, still ongoing uh, we didn't understand the role that the Saudis played in terms of educating these guys, in terms of uh, spreading their money and seeding these madrasas that teach very hateful ideology throughout Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, just how deeply ingrained that had become. Uh, we didn't understand an awful lot, as it turned out. We also didn't understand, and this is what my upcoming, my next coming, upcoming piece is about, uh, just how prevalent the uh, poppy plant is throughout Afghanistan, which uh, you can harvest opioids from it and use it to produce heroin and, and opioids. And, and to the extent that Afghanistan has become increasingly reliant on it and is essentially a narco state, which is not what we wanted to happen. Uh, we didn't understand a lot. And yeah. we're, we it it's trickled out just how poor, how shabby our understanding is. And it, it shatters this whole binary that you have of freedom versus uh, tyranny. Well, yeah, that's very important. I mean, anybody who's a libertarian understands that, and we need to emphasize that. Uh, but there was a lot else that was going on in Afghanistan, too. And we just, a single centralized authority couldn't hope to take account of all of it. But uh, just for a second, I mean, what bothers me about that, Matt, is that this isn't 2007. This is mm -hmm. 2021. And I think there were plenty of people that understood all of that all the way through. It's just those weren't the people who were populating the blob. They weren't populating the State Department um, and the intelligence services, or maybe the intelligence services, but the, 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 who are at the actual levers of policy. And I think the people who actually were in those positions felt the need to always keep trying. They felt like, we can do this. And it was um, personal uh, survival. Uh, for their own livelihoods and for their own power and influence, but also, you know, the idealism that you talked about. Uh, and it's like that in the military, too. They don't feel like they can fail. And so it's always like victories right around the corner or we can do this if only we have more money and we're training more troops and we're building up uh, these little pieces of the civil society. But taken together, it didn't work. 
And we did know it wasn't working because a special inspector for Afghanistan had put out reports every quarter for the last like 15 years, basically saying our money was going into a sieve. So there's this disconnect between what we knew um, and what the actors on the ground and in, in Congress and the blob were doing, but they're the ones that had all the control. And I, I think that's right. And I think probably at some point, maybe we should conclude is that at some point the knowledge problem became a public choice problem. Yeah. And this became right. self-sustaining and yep. a desire by, by a giant bureaucracy that was involved in Afghanistan to keep the money flowing and to keep their jobs going. Yep. And that's where we are today. Yeah, the, by the way, the giant sieve, there was a nice skim before the money went down the sieve. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> and I, I'm thinking about this, uh, I, I think it was in Scott Horton's um, last book about yeah. Afghanistan. And you know Scott, and yeah, I assume you know book. Scott. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this exchange, this shocking exchange between Wolf Blitzer and Rand Paul, and Rand Paul is, is, as he has for consistently arguing that we need to get out of Afghanistan. And, and Blitzer actually says, but what about all of the jobs created by this effort in Afghanistan? I'm like, I didn't realize that um, job creation for the war machine to bomb more people was, was a defensible <laughs> argument, but it, it sort of feeds itself. Yeah. Like, you're gonna ignore the knowledge problems because um, there's a lot of people making a lot of money, um, never ending this war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, that that's the Paul Krugman argument, right? Which is, what if we just employed people to dig holes to nowhere, and maybe that would, at least we'd have employment. I mean, at least that'd be a good thing, even if it was, what what it was going towards was ultimately heinous. And yeah, I mean, I think, and that gets back to another problem that we have too, probably talking about the military-industrial complex, and that is that it's deeply rooted throughout America. Right. It's deeply rooted in my home state, for example, of Virginia, where there's I mean, you can barely there's so many military bases. You can barely throw a stone without like hitting a sniper in a tree. Right. Yeah. And defense contractors. Um, This war has, if nothing else, been very good for Crystal City and Herndon and, you know, the the general area around D.C. where all these companies are housed. So, yeah, it's 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 a very big target. It's a very big problem. And um, and it's got a lot of facets to it. So I'm, I'm wondering, um, and by the way, we should absolutely give Joe Biden credit for doing the thing he said he was going to do. I'm, I'm quite surprised by it, actually, because when he shifted the deadline away from the, the agreed upon date that the Trump administration had established, I'm like, OK, I see what's going to happen here. He's just going to keep yeah. moving the deadline. Why, why did he do this? Um, it, it has to be more complicated than I said I would because every it's president <laughs> yeah, every president in my lifetime has promised this and they didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Why, why did Biden do it? Um, I, well, I, I think that part of it was that, uh, part of it was CYA. Part of it was that he was pulling out and to have sent the troops back in after all that to say just, actually, you know what? So sorry. We're actually going to you know get the boots back on the ground. That would have been humiliating for him. That would have been a major problem. Uh, I, I think that um, he was probably eager to fulfill a, a campaign promise that he made. But I also... And again, I have no inclination to praise Joe Biden. I didn't vote for him. I don't like him. I'm not trying to defend him in any way. I have a difficult time having watched that speech that he made a few nights ago and not think this is somebody who, at least on this one issue, gets it. That is the most, uh, probably the most convincing case for foreign policy restraint that I've seen a president make in my lifetime. I'll do respect to Donald Trump. 
uh, it, it was kind of remarkable to watch. I mean, every time I turn on the guy, I tend to, to cringe and all of a sudden I'm just sitting there nodding <laughs> along with everything he's saying. And I, it, it, he didn't have to do that, right? He could have given some mealy mouth statement or stayed on vacation or letting his let his underlings, let the Defense Department and the State Department handle it. Instead, he he went on TV and he answered these criticisms point by point. And, and he actually made an argument, which I think, you know, from presidents anyway, is not something that those of us who are restrainers are used to seeing. Yeah. So I, I do give him credit for that. I, I think you're, you're right, Matt. He gets it. And mm-hmm. the writing's on the wall. Like I said before, the American public wants to get out of these wars. They want to get out of endless wars. This was obvious in 2016 when Donald Trump was running and he called out uh, George Bush as being a liar for getting us into Iraq and he called Iraq a failure right there on the debate stage. And everybody in the blob was like, ooh, it's the end of Donald Trump. And he actually <laughs> went up a few points after that. Yeah. And then it was like, ooh, this whole getting out of endless wars thing actually has traction. And so he built he ended up building a whole base on the up on the right of people who hadn't been actively against the war before or they had been but had no way to vocalize it. And so I think everyone on the debate stage on both sides and um, of these last few elections have mouthed it in some way. And I think Biden knew that he's got the backing of the American people. Um, I think I agree with Matt. I think it was a, it was a great speech. And, you know, before all the all the partisan uh, sniping came into play, I noticed on Twitter, uh, you know, people on the right going uh, Tom Woods was one one mm-hmm. of them saying, I know I'm going to get killed for this, but I don't find anything in this speech that I disagree with. Yeah. Right. And yeah. some people came and they were sniping at him, but it, it was true. I mean, he was saying all the right things. It was almost like he came to the Quincy Institute <laughs> or the American conservative and asked for talking points. Mm-hmm. So it's, It is a fundamental shift from where Joe Biden has been for his entire career. Um, so I, I wonder who wrote the speech, and I, I would love to hear the, the decision to say those things. But but I'm hopeful, again, I, I'm going to be an optimist, like there are these trends in both the Republican uh, Party conservative movement and the Democratic Party going, with the Democrats going all the way back to Barbara Lee, yep. with the Republicans most notably uh, the Ron Paul phenomenon yeah. uh, going back to 2008, that maybe the politics have shifted. Because I, I would always attribute these things to politics, not a change of heart, because um, I'm cynical that way. Yep. Um, maybe is I mean is there a, a principled anti-war movement pushing the Democratic Party the way it, it drove Bernie? I don't know if there's a principled anti-war movement, although I'd like to see more of that on the left because I miss the kind of late 2000s nation left. I mean, I used to read the nation religiously um, because th- they really were opposed to the war and they really did care about civil liberties. And I wish we could get some of that back, capture it in a bottle. There's a few commentators who, who still maintain that spirit, but I wish there were more of them. I think, though, that this has been fomenting for a long time because history is full of anti-war Republicans who supposedly just blew themselves up on a public stage and, in fact, went on to do great things. I mean, remember Ron Paul uh, when he stood up to Rudy Giuliani yes. back in 07, 08, whenever it was mm-hmm. that that you know shot heard around the world. That was the end of him. No way you're going to be that far out of lockstep with the GOP base when, in fact, he got this movement going behind him and became a kind of cult hero. Yep. Rand Paul would never win his election in Kentucky. Well, he did and ran and, and won re-election too. Donald Trump, no way he can ever win when he's saying these heinous things about our wars. Well, then he does win. 
and now uh, Joe Biden just destroyed his own presidency. This is the the worst thing I've ever seen from any American. I, I see people 40 years old saying this. The worst thing I've ever seen from any American president. <laughs> How much do you want to bet, especially given the AP poll that came out this morning, which found that two thirds of the country doesn't think we should have fought the war in Afghanistan? There you go. How much do you want to bet that that Joe Biden is going to survive this unscathed yeah. too? That he's going to end up being okay. Uh, it just over and over again, the people in this town consistently underestimate how popular anti-war sentiment is. And even if that isn't necessarily cohered into a movement, uh, it exists at the popular level, I think. Yeah. Will Republicans get this or do they have to be partisan and criticize Biden for doing this thing? Yeah, this is a problem in this town. I mean, it's it's probably, um, you know, a, a near term problem. But I, I, I agree it's a challenge. You know, even from my perspective at the Quincy Institute, uh, we had much better, um, you know, success with building bridges with Republicans or at least getting those, you know, the, the blocks in, in place during the Trump era because this, is, this was the language that Trump was talking, you know, getting yeah. out of endless wars. Um, you know, he, he wasn't perfect. I think some of his, um, his other policies like on Iran were problematic, for example, um, but now it's it's like the politics versus you know uh, the principle, and right now I think you'll always have your Rand Pauls, and to a certain extent, people like Mike Lee and Peter Mayer on on the House side and Tom Massey who will stick to principles. But I think there's there's less flexibility on coming out and being vocal about getting out of these wars because now all of a sudden they see they see the democratic president getting you know the slings and arrows they're not gonna they're not gonna reach out to help him mm -hmm. so yeah. i guess we'll, we'll see after the the dust settles but i think they know their constituencies want to get out of this war because aside from your tom cottons you do you i don't hear a lot of republicans out there doing much more than um, talking about the evacuation and talking about not getting the translators out right away. I don't hear a lot of them putting their necks out about staying in that war. Because you listen to the conservative talk radio, and I've been on a few um, since this all started, you know, they're, they're with the people, they're with the veterans. And what they're saying is, we got to get out. This is ugly. We don't like it. We're sad it failed. But time 20 years is enough and by the way the veterans were a key part of ron paul's coalition right which if you would believe neoconservative voices that's a contradiction but of course the the people who put their lives at risk for these endless wars would be the first to know that this is a bad way um to spend your career but it's a bad way to risk your life right yep and i think it i I was saying this to, to someone yesterday. I said, this is what put our our efforts, and I mean our you know efforts to get out of these wars over the top, I think, have been the veterans who have um, banded together, have joined organizations, who have been writing in letters to the editor, getting quoted, being out there on social media. Um, they have a credibility. They have a gravitas. Um, they know what's, what's you know, they've been there. They've done that. And I think in the past as as you both know you know all the right and the warmongers needed to do was say well if you're against the the policy you're against the troops yeah you know if you speak out that somehow you're not giving due support to the troops all that's over i mean that's just been I'm, uh, this is reminding me of the marginalization uh, again my shock that that biden did this 
the marginalization of Tulsi Gabbard in, yeah. in the Democratic primary. And she, of course, was the only one that had actually served in the military. So she had that, that perspective of seeing how this stuff happens in practice instead yeah. of theory. Uh, I'm hoping that there's a shift going on here that, that maybe, maybe Tulsi won the primary. Yeah, Tulsi, come if, back. If policy matters, <laughs> if policy matters, oh. um, I hope that's true. I want to go back, and this this will be a rabbit hole, but I mean, I've heard this said about Latin America as well, and I hadn't thought about it enough. But the the narco state, yeah, and the production of poppy, um, and the what is it? Ninety percent of the heroin comes from Afghanistan, I believe. Eighty five to ninety percent. Eighty five to ninety yep. percent. Um, here's a wild idea that doesn't involve a single um, American soldier being put at risk, why don't we end the war on drugs? Yeah. Why don't we undercut their financial uh, cash cow? Yes, and I, and I agree with that. I mean, I, obviously the war on drugs has been a calamitous figure, uh, failure and hasn't worked in the recent you know, heroin epidemic, opioid epidemic ought to demonstrate that. But I think wherever you stand on the war on drugs, we can probably all agree it's a bad idea to have a single country uh, in, the, in, Central, in, in Asia that is providing, that is pumping out constantly all of this poppy and all of these opioids, right? Like libertarian, you know, neoconservative, traditionalist, whatever you are, I think we can probably agree that that's not a good thing to have. And that has been the result largely of our occupation. The Taliban actually banned the growing of poppy back in 2000. Back in 2000. They declared it un-Islamic. They said, you're not allowed to do it anymore. That may not have been sustainable because it devastated the Afghan economy. Uh, but you did see the production of poppy plummet during that during that year anyway. After we came back, we didn't really know what we were doing, and we were you know very hands off when it came to to that particular issue. And you saw uh, you, you saw the growth of poppy absolutely explode to the point that I think uh, right now estimates are that it's something like twenty to thirty three percent of Afghanistan's total economic output, which is a shocking number. Um, and again, it's you know. That's because of our cluelessness. That's because of the failure of central planning right. and the inability to wrap our heads around what Afghanistan actually was. Nobody wanted that going in. That wasn't the intention, but we ended up with that because we wildly overestimated the government's ability to be able to, to rebuild a functioning country there. Yeah, and of course, under the Trump administration, um, I'm against all the wars, inclu including the war on opioids right. and fill in the blank because, because of unintended consequences um, one of the consequences of, of a radical clamping down on legally prescribed opioids is the growth of, of the heroin market. And it's the bad guys that profit from this. Um, w w I'm sure, I don't know, I'm sure Quincy doesn't have an opinion on this, but do you? Yeah, I have, I have opinion. Um, outside of Quincy, I, I, I agree with you both. I mean, after, after that initial um, period where the Taliban... Uh, you know, banned the poppy crop. Now they, after we came in, and you know, we, you know, they, they were, you know, uh, entrenched in, in an insurgency. They realized we can benefit from this. Yeah. So that is their major funding stream right now. So just as the the Biden administration is encouraging uh, the World Bank and the IMF to freeze all of the assets, all the aid that you know that have been flowing, the legitimate aid that's that's been flowing there, um, they're ramping up their uh, poppy streams, their poppy revenues. 
uh, and that's not going to go away. So we spent 20 years sending uh, troops and uh, DEA, for, for God's sakes, over there burning fields and encouraging. Torching uh, their fields uh, from air. And yeah, stay, yeah, torching was... their fields, encouraging alternative crops. Um, all of that was a waste, by the way, um, your tax dollars at, at work. And um, if, you know, if we really want them to end, you know, that stream, uh, we would, um, you know, end the black market, end the prohibition, because it, it, we're only by by freezing all their legitimate assets, we're only we're only pushing them further and further into this into this illicit trade, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And I think you put a price tag on the American efforts to uh, destroy the poppy production in Afghanistan. I don't know if you remember the number, but it's a big number. I don't. I want to say 7.4 billion, but I it could be much higher than I guess, that. I, don't I guess remember. that's chump yeah. change in <laughs> Afghanistan. Of course. Yeah. Who's keeping track at this point? And you, you had put a much bigger price tag on Afghanistan. You you, you say $2 trillion uh-huh. and 6,300 American lives. Um, I see a trillion bandied about, and I guess uh, sooner or later, trillion here, trillion there, it, it adds up. But What's that number based on? This is all just throwing darts at the board right now. I mean, it's going to take, you really have to get out of a war, I think, to determine its total cost. Um, I I should also note that the 6,300 number is both armed forces and contractors. So both have been killed in very great numbers in Iraq, uh, private and public sector. Uh, But but the estimates right now that that I've seen anyway are are $2 trillion for the total cost of the war, which amounts to about $300 per day. Uh, That number may get revised. It, It may go up. But... You know, remember that this comes in the context of a time of almost unprecedented national debt with really no plan to pay it down, no baby boom on the way or the troops are going to come home and spend all kinds of money. You know, nothing like we had after World War Two. So it's uh, those who are being sent to fight this war are also those who are ultimately going to have to end up paying for this war. And that seems to me like just a monstrous injustice because they didn't have a a choice. A lot of them weren't even were in diapers when 9-11 happened. I mean, we, the war really has been going on for that long. Yeah. So that's that's to me just outrageous. I saw a video on Twitter of um, some Taliban guy counting Franklin's. He's standing in front of pallets of one hundred dollar bills. <laughs> um, and I felt like that was a metaphor for something. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the entire failure. I mean, remember, too, this uh, this happened so often, right? Remember, we were going to arm the Syrian rebels, and they were going to rise up against Assad and establish a Madisonian democracy in Syria. And uh, in fact, what happened is that a lot of them turned their arms over to al-Qaeda and, and to ISIS. And now we're seeing the same yep. thing where the Taliban is at risk of taking our planes. And it's, you know, right. th- this is what happens kind of when you just fill a place with weapons. They ultimately end up in the hands of the wrong people. Yeah, they've, they've quite a modern... Uh arsenal right now they do and i and i just um i just put up a post at responsible statecraft um based on some great reporting at the intercept in which the taliban have have apparently seized these devices that the u.s military was using to take iris scans and fingerprints of um, thousands of afghans and it ostensibly it was for tracking terrorists but they were using these device devices for everybody that worked with the coalition yeah and so all of these people that we're supposed to be getting out of the country right now, and many won't make it, are going to be on a hit list. Yeah. And this happened in Iraq. We, but in that case, we literally handed over all the biometric uh, information to Prime Minister Maliki's government, who, who used that 
to to disappear Sunnis off the streets. Um, I just I feel like uh, there's no forethought, uh, or or it's deliberate. We just don't care about these people. How would they? How would we? How could we let this happen? How could we let all these weapons and equipment get into the wrong hands? Um, but we do see it all the time. I think it's knowledge problem leads to an incentive problem, and and you get like. Um, once you establish a program of biometrics to, to get the bad guys, um, the natural incentive is, well, let's do it for everybody. What could go what, wrong? What could go wrong? Mm -hmm. And they, they don't think about it. I feel like there may be a cautionary tale about uh, mass surveillance here at home. Right. Somewhere I get that, but that you would story. think that we would know by now. Like somebody was, there was a, um, a contractor who was quoted in that intercept piece, basically saying, we had no idea. I'm thinking, what do you mean you had no idea? You have a massive database. You don't have an insecure system in an insecure country. And like you had no idea this could get into the wrong hands. Yeah. yeah. It just seemed very naive to me. So let, uh, let's talk about our obligations to the people that uh, worked with us and, and attempted, as ill-fated as it was, to establish a, a liberal democracy in Afghanistan because there's a debate amongst conservatives and and the typical conservatives are saying we, I don't want any of those guys over here um, and even libertarians are arguing about what do we have a moral obligation to um, protect the people as in give them visas and let them come to America for Afghans that that I, I argue I, I said this on Twitter and not everyone was pleased but I feel like um, some of these Afghans are probably more American than some Americans are in terms of their, their respect for uh, liberty and individual responsibility. Where are you guys on this subject? Well, I mean, months ago, the Quincy Institute had joined other groups in calling for these SIVs, that's shorthand for these um, interpreters and translators, to be given uh, their visas and to expedite them out of the country. That was months ago, and I don't remember any um, backlash to that. I remember it being very popular with veterans, you know, coalition groups um, on the left and the right, because the right was, you know, the right, um, you know, they, they, you know, they craft their talking points around the veterans and, and the soldiers who were there. And the soldiers were saying, I want my buddies, the people that helped us to get home. And there didn't seem to be any problem with that. Um, I, I, I think there, are, there is a lot of disappointment today in the way that that has been executed. And um, this idea that this, this debate springing up about whether or not we should let them in the country, I don't know where this is coming from other than it is, it is a political argument that's been ginned up to criticize the president. Right. And I find it kind of ugly, actually, because I, I, I feel like these people <laughs> they risk their lives so that um, our, our soldiers... Uh, could come home safely that could operate safely in that country and to say that they don't deserve to come here just seems like uh very inhumane to me yeah mm -hmm. yeah i think that we do have an obligation to an extent we don't yet know how the taliban is going to treat the afghanis right. who worked with us uh there were a lot of them by the way i mean we were there for 20 years that's going to cover an awful lot of people in kabul and elsewhere uh we're not quite sure yet what that overall policy is going to be but um, if it does turn out that that's an effective death sentence, which it may not, but if it does turn out that way, then we're going to be very happy that we were able to get at least those who wanted to leave out of the country. And I, I'm all with Kelly on this one. I don't understand why this was not a priority much, much earlier. Why were we were not thinking about this deeper than we were? Um, 
again, it just goes to a lack of planning that, that you know, is just endemic to this entire uh, occupation. You're also going to face both in the United States and especially in, in Europe as well, uh, which, you know, has seen the rise of various nationalist and populist figures uh, as a result, in part, maybe even primarily from the refugee crisis that happened there uh, six years ago. You're, you're going to see, I think, skepticism about taking in too many people. Um but but there's many nations that they could potentially go to. There's there's different ways to facilitate this. Yeah, I I think that you do have to. Uh, well, your heart has to bleed for those people, right? I mean, it's if ever there was a case for immigration, I think that it's yeah. probably it probably rests with them, uh, irrespective of how you feel about the immigration issue otherwise. But yeah, I think my my first gut reaction to hearing about their plights is just an absolute awe that we didn't think about this sooner, that there yeah. wasn't more done ahead of time in order to, to help these people. Yeah, like we were apparently collecting uh, biometric data on everybody, but surely there is a list of extremely vetted people that, that have been our allies. Like we've had 20 years to develop this, and I, it's, um, like it's, it's government failure in a, in a breathtaking way, but, but I've been scolded by, by a lot of my friends expecting anything better and and that sort of gets at, at how I want to wrap this up the the narrative um, coming out of Afghanistan will either be we should never leave again because that was such a disaster and and look at all of the you know the Taliban's taking over and all of these these innocent people are getting harmed or the narrative can be um, government fails catastrophically particularly when you need it not to and obviously, I think the second narrative is, is the correct one, and it should be a cautionary tale about any sort of interventionism and, and, and uh, particularly nation building. Um, how do we, I'm assuming you guys agree with me on that second narrative, but how do we make sure that the right lesson is learned? Right. It's, it's all about the legacy. What will the legacy of this war be? And I think right now you're seeing the fight for that legacy. And that's why you see the, the blobby voices on CNN and MSNBC and, and elsewhere talking and, and clouding the, the real issue. So they want to talk all about the evacuation and they want to imply that if we just stayed there a little longer, we have H.R. McMaster general out there saying, you know, uh, poo-pooing this idea of endless war. Oh, we'd leave. 3,500 troops there, we could have held it together. So you see this fight for the narrative. I think the American people are smarter than that. And I think that unfortunately, time is on our side. 20 years is a long time to have proven either way whether a nation building experiment can work. When we left Iraq, it was a little more tenuous. You still had people saying, well, if we just stayed there and helped the Iraqis or we kept some troops there, uh, we, we, we could have fixed things. And some people were inclined to believe that because we had been there for much less time. But I don't think there's anybody out there uh, who are or genuinely believing that, 20, that we needed another 5, 15, 20 more years to prove that nation building works. It seems incredulous. Yeah. Incredulous. Yeah, and it, I think the, the most remarkable argument that I hear about all of this are the people who say, why should we not have troops in Afghanistan or keep troops in Afghanistan when we still have troops in the most powerful nation in Europe 75 years after World War II ended? And I'm like, that's the problem. That's precisely the problem. The troops go in and they don't come out. And it, 
it discourages, this is kind of apples and oranges to a point, but take a nation like Germany. It's actively discouraged them from developing their own military, from snapping out of that sense of, you know, historical shame that they have and from really getting a military going because America will just pay their bills. We'll just take care of it for them. Uh, So there are very good reasons on the table for withdrawal, not just from Afghanistan, but from other places too. I think that Again, I, I can't say for sure whether it could have gone or how much better it could have gone in Afghanistan, how much better we could have prepared for this, how much of that we could have prevented from happening. I think that's going to take probably years to, to be able to sort out and to fully assess. Uh, but I, I do think that you saw those, those scenes in Saigon, but that didn't become the totality of our historical memory about the Vietnam War. Right. We still remembered how pointless it was, how futile it was. We still remembered the veterans coming home with the, the blown off limbs. We still remembered, uh, well, we still had something called Vietnam syndrome, which I don't think was necessarily such a bad thing, which was a sense of restraint in terms of intervening abroad, you know, a, a lack of willingness to use our military after that. Um, so again, it, it, it one one image did not become the totality of the thing. And I think that's probably likely to be the case here too. I, we've been there for 20 years. It's it's long enough. And and given the state of the armed forces there, we apparently were not able to set out what we what we intended to do. I think that that's going to stick very much as well. I hope so. So tell us um, tell us where we can go to American Conservative, and then tell me where you'll be at Spectators, so people can follow you and check out your stuff. Absolutely. So it's uh, theamericanconservative.com. So easy enough to remember. I'll have a piece up there tomorrow about the narco state issue that we were just talking about. I've been writing about Afghanistan all week. And then in about a week and a half, I'll be starting at The uh, Spectator, which is a British-based publication. I think it's actually the oldest continuously published uh, right-leaning publication in the world, although it could be wrong about that. But I think it is. And uh, they have an American division now, which I'm going to be working on. And you can check them out at spectator.us. Quincy Institute, how do we find you and your stuff? Okay, so Quincy Institute is quincyinst.org. And I edit responsiblestatecraft.org, which is the online magazine of uh, the Quincy Institute. Okay, thank you guys for pulling this together so quickly. Um, We're going to get this up today because I think we need to help people sort out this very complex issue. Thanks to both of you. Thank Thank you. you. It was fun. That was amazing. Where can I get more content just like that? It's a great question. You're clearly a discerning consumer of the best content. Make sure to like the video, subscribe, and click the bell. And if you're consuming podcasts, go to Apple, Stitcher, anywhere you get them. I'm in. Kibbe on Liberty, honest conversations with interesting people. 